are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe! <laughs> An appropriate laugh, because Out Now is normally a film podcast where we discuss new movies weekly. However, it is the month of October, October 2018 to be exact, which means that Abe and I are also going to be doing these special bonus horror episodes throughout the month, and this is... Our first official horror episode. We did one last week. We did a, our Dark Man commentary track. And this is our first, like, let's just get together and talk about horror movies episode. And that's what's exactly going to happen. So, Abe and I are going to be talking about uh, The Fly, the 1986 The Fly from David Cronenberg, as well as a little discussion about body horror in general. And joining Abe and I to discuss just those things, we have from Why So Blue, Be Afraid. Be very afraid. It's Jason Coleman. Yes. Long live the new flesh. Also joining us from Joe Blow, he has one magic word to say to you. Cheeseburger. It's Jimmy O. I love Deborah Harry and Videodrome, by the way. <laughs> that's my that's that's why I have to add right now. And also joining us from Cal State Fullerton. <laughs> He's finally on to something that's big. Huge! It's Professor Mike Dillon. <laughs> Hi, buzz Ooh. buzz. Hey, Mike. Buzz, buzz. <laughs> buzz, buzz. <laughs> the onomatopoeia is great. Sometimes I'm so satisfied by fo- having an intro that I wrote followed up by something as clever as Buzz Buzz. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm already a fan of you, Mike. I'm already a fan. <laughs> oh, good. I was going to go with help me, but... You said, you said... I was going to do that, too, oh, but it's Vincent Price. Yeah, well, we'll so save that for our God. price-a-thon next year. Yeah, right. oh, that would be a, that would be a good topic. We actually, should yeah, do no, we'll, 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 this Price. is this is so for the off recording topic. But yes, we will we will get to Vincent Price at some point. Wait, now uh, you classified him as a doctor? Is Buzz Buzz a medical term? I'm curious. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, I'm not the kind of doctor you realize. I said I, yeah. Uh, I said professor. Oh, professor. I apologize. Well, is it a literary term then? I would say. No. Uh, Yes, if you go back to the works of like Aristotle and all the way back, <laughs> man is all about the punning. <laughs> nice. Yeah. nice. Okay, so to recap, Little we, will, back. we will talk about Vincent Price at some point. Also, speaking of which, we do these horror episodes. Have you guys noticed that Eli Ross trying to crib on our territory? What? He's got like this, oh, yeah, he's, he's like uh... horror specials in October on AMC. I'm like, well, okay, Eli Roth and your big guests that you get on your show. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing these for years. AMC hasn't thrown us a bone. He <laughs> televised our little thing that we do just a few weeks out of the oh, year. Yeah, that's... but does he have a professor and there a movie go. producer? Probably. There you go. <laughs> well, yes, he has, oh, he, has, he has multiple producers. I think. He has, yeah, he probably he has like Del Toro one. and Tarantino and Stephen King and all these people. But <laughs> no professor. I've there never heard of those people. I'm sure like one of them probably want. teaches some course at some college. <laughs> I don't. I don't like that the legitimacy of this podcast hangs on my presence. <laughs> it, it really does. You're, you're, it really you're, does. you're bound to be disappointed. Trust me, Mike. Although, I don't. I don't like it either. I'll tell you that right now. Although I have the distinct ability to bring the Canadian aspect to it, so we are discussing the fly. We are just discussing Cronenberg. So being a or Canadian, growing up Canadian, I can at least bring the Canadian aspect that Eli Roth can't touch. So. I feel like this is the yeah. most that Jason's ever like prided himself on his Canadianness ever on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like I like his Canadian celebration. And you know, I, I realized. Do you, do, you, do you guys all remember Nancy Loomis? Oh, well, Nancy. I guess Keys, Keys from Halloween. Yes. Keys. Nay yeah, Loomis. now Nancy K- Keys. Nay Loomis is I, I think how I'm would do it. I'm going to do the podcast today with her kind of tone from the fog. 
I think that's going to be me today. So exhausted. That's my energy. Yeah, that's my energy today. So let's enjoy this, shall we? Well, let's do that. Let's get to some show notes real quick first up, because they are related to this podcast. As I mentioned, we do have our Darkman commentary up, which is, of course, um, tied to both the release of Venom, because Sam Raimi directed Darkman. He directed Spider-Man 3, which has Venom in it. Also, it deals with, it's a kind of an homage to Universal Movie Monsters as well as a superhero movie. Uh, but that's on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere you can find our podcast now. And what else? Friend of the show, Terrence Johnson. He has his his web series, The Vampire Resistance Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's currently on YouTube. The first two episodes are already cool. up. The next episode arrives uh, this coming Wednesday at the time of this recording. It'll be coming throughout the month. Um, really cool show. Cool to, good to check those out. Uh, we'll be. I think we're posting the links. I'm trying to post the links when I can on the Facebook page and on and retweet them on Twitter. And um, let's see. Yeah, we're gonna keep having these horror episodes throughout the month. We'll get to kind of what we're gonna do throughout the month at the end of this episode. But for now, let's talk about why we're talking about the fly to begin with. Mike, you wanna wanna provide a little background on this? Yeah, just briefly. Uh, there is a fantastic uh, horror and monster convention called Monster Palooza. It meets twice a year in the SoCal area, and uh, I partner with them for the last couple of years. I've been partnering with them to provide weekend passes for my students. And so I host a social media contest and entering it is just uh, recommend a horror film that you want all your friends to check out. And because I need to stay neutral, I ask you guys to pick the winner. And we usually we've done this a couple of times now. We make the winning entry the subject of a podcast and you guys pick the fly. Yeah, and uh, we're very happy to do so. I'm a big fan of The Fly, and I think it just... Oh, me too. I'm, like, so excited. It's easily one of my all-time favorite John Getz movies. <laughs> oh, God. That, you know, you, he, you, say, you say that. You say, he's been in some great movies. No, he's in Social don't, Network. Don't, he's in Zodiac. He's got some great movies. Right. He's in Blood Simple. You know, it's one, one of my all-time amazing. Oh, oh, we're talking about Blood Simple. Now I'm excited. No, just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm excited about The Fly. Don't get me wrong. There's some body excited. horror in Blood Simple if you want to talk about it, but I, let's there is. Let's, let's move into it. Let's there, get Joel and Ethan Cohenberg. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's what they that go is. by. And it, it also seems fitting to be doing this as well because Beyond Fest just recently did a tribute to Cronenberg, yes. where they played like nineteen Cronenberg films, two of which I did get a chance to see. I went to see the Videodrome and Existence, and of course Cronenberg was there, and it was it was it was a real uh, it was really fascinating to kind of hear him talk about the film and and you know see the audience interact with him. So it was a it's it's to me that 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 is like the ultimate festival playing a you know a Cronenberg festival so very fitting and a very good choice well yeah we're, I'm excited to get into this so let's just do that uh, let's talk about the fly I think you're making a mistake I think you really want to talk to me sorry I have three other interviews to do before this party's over yeah but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it they say they are yeah but they're lying there is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. All right, so we're talking about the fly. The fly, the fly, the fly, the fly. (laughs) The plane, the plane. The same. <laughs> Sorry, wrong so, reference. So we're talking about The Fly. Uh, this film hit theaters in uh, 1986 in August. It's a remake. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, it's it's basically, it's loosely based off a short story by George Langlin, 
um, which was turned into a film uh, starring featuring Vincent Price uh, back in the what fifties. Do we assume fifty seven? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Fifty seven was a short. Yeah. I think the movie was around that same time. Fifty eight, yeah. Uh, and now we have there we have the fly, uh, David Cronenberg's film, which stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and the aforementioned John Getz. Woo! Uh, <laughs> uh, Goldblum stars as Seth Brundle, a brilliant scientist who has the kind of quirks that you'd expect from Jeff Goldblum. Gina Davis plays, <laughs> uh, she plays uh, Veronica Quef, uh, a uh, a journalist. Oh, uh, Veronica from that Elvis Costello song. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. Could be me all night. Thanks. The movie launches into them right away as they meet up. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, Seth Brundle, wants to take her back to his warehouse, as one tends to want to do in an innocent enough manner, <laughs> and show him, show him his. Show, it, it is a very strange introduction. Yeah. And, and show him his. Yeah, but, yeah, but but listen, you've got you've got the perfect Goldblum '80s hair in that thing. I would follow him anywhere with that hair. And so he t- takes back to his warehouse, show him his, shows, shows her his pods, which turn out to be teleportation pods. Uh, things go from there, as we learn. Teleportation, while apparently possible, is not always the most seamless of things. Uh, let's get right into our thoughts on this film individually before we get into a deeper discussion. Uh, Mike, you've already mentioned that you love this movie. Why don't you expand on that a little bit? What I love about the movie or my history with the movie or what, what you, what you want to know? I think like both. Both, yeah, yeah. Both sound good. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of assuming we're all maybe about the same age, give or take a few years. So I don't really recall anymore when I first saw it. Uh, I just, I imagine it was probably in the 90s as a VHS rental, uh, somewhere around then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what's more interesting, since we're talking about Cronenberg, is I do think, even though I don't recall when I first saw it, it had to have been around the time I was beginning to become conscious of, like, auteurs. And the idea that this wasn't just some exciting horror film, but it was one that was directed by the same guy who made this film or that other film, which is a particular form of spectatorship, right? To view the project um, as something that is the product of an individual artist whose sensibilities become part of the strategy for understanding what the film is up to. So I was in the early stages of that, I think, um, which is kind of my entry point into the film, especially looking back on it now. It seems really obvious now that it's a Cronenberg project because every time you hear the word flesh in the film, you think, ding, Cronenberg. Like you could do it. You could you could do a drinking game every time you hear the word flesh uh, in this film. But, you know, since then, it's become kind of a fun go to film. I've shown it in classes. It always gets a good reaction. Um, I have a few quibbles with it, having recently rewatched it, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, I'm still pretty positive on this. I don't know if it's my favorite Cronenberg, but it's up there. Top three, maybe. We should do that later, too. Top three Cronenberg films. Um, let's go to Jason. Jason, what are your thoughts on the on the fly? Well, having, you know, again, having grown up in Canada, you know, I followed a lot of great Canadian filmmakers at the time. Adam Goyen, uh, Denis Zarkand, who did Jesus of Montreal, Bruce McDonald. So I was very aware of Cronenberg stuff, you know, from, from The Brood and Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Zone. So The Fly... What's interesting to me is it's obviously a little more big budgeted. It was obviously made by a major studio, but I think that was really the only factor that made it such a hit because all of his other movies are just as equally brilliant and good. Um, they all very specifically have to do with flesh and obsession with flesh and and, and uh, stories revolving around it. And The Fly is just no different. It's really the 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 the. The concept itself is is obviously, you know, is interesting, but what he does with it is just, you know, from the the, the makeup to the I mean, it's it's so barren that 
movie because when you think of it there's no big grandiose sets it's not a, a horror movie that takes you out and and it, it's very enclosed and and so good man so good yeah, cool. it is his most it, arguably his most mainstream movie i feel like right right, right. definitely well, uh, yeah but, in, in the horror canon i think especially Yes. Yeah, I mean, given the fact that it's a remake and it's it's got this budget to it, it feels um, maybe gorier than the average horror film at the time, but definitely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of feels like uh, it's, it's right in the middle a of the studio 80s. film. It's right in yeah. the middle yeah. of the yeah. 80s. I mean, it's not it's not going that far off the beaten path when it comes to. Yeah, maybe not, but yeah. it does it does feel like a like a, a studio project more so than some of his other stuff. I think. Yeah, it's, it also it's, felt, not a, it's not a criticism, of course. No, yeah. I it know. also felt like it also felt like it had the budget to be able to sustain the amount of. Uh, creepy flesh effects and fly effects and things like that to be able to take it one step further than maybe some of his other stuff. Like Videodrome had some great, obviously interesting groundbreaking effects, but again, was probably done on a smaller budget. Whereas the fly, I think was able to use that budget to even push the envelope even more and give more creepiness to the flesh. Yeah. We'll talk about this as it goes on, but I do think the fly also opened up a lot of doors for where Cronenberg would go from here. Um, but I, I want to get to Jimmy. Jimmy, where are you, what are your thoughts on the fly? Yeah, it's pretty good. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> no. where are you at? On, okay, Jimmy, keep going. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing it. You know, it's been a while since I've seen it. I, I just, I remember, I, obviously, J- Jeff Goldblum's, he really outdid his, uh, himself in this one, especially after his great performance in Death Wish. Um, <laughs> the original, of course. Uh, I love the... I love the fact that it was gory, but it it never felt it never felt unnecessarily gory. It uh, David Cronenberg has a way to make he has this way about making something grotesque, disgusting, vile, and and making it cinematic in a in a smart way. And the the fly is I, I definitely agree with you guys. It's one of his most um I, I I'm. I guess mainstream, but it, it because it has a lot of really interesting elements. It, you know, it's it, it's in a weird sort of way. It's a love story. It, it's a you know, you have Gina Davis and, and Jeff Goldblum have magnificent chemistry. It's really a lot of fun to watch. But and when you actually see him going through the change, it's such a it's kind of beautiful in a weird fucked up sort of way. Oh wait, can I say that? Here? You can. You're fine. I forget. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I mean it's. It, it, <laughs> It's a it's a great movie. I think it still holds up pretty well because I, I you know there's a lot of practical effects involved and they, they didn't try obviously they didn't have they didn't have the CG to uh, do it. They really had to go and get it get bloody and gory and it it looks great. It's a fantastic film and it, you know it won the first two. It won the uh, Oscar for best special effects, obviously best, uh, for makeup. good reason. Makeup, yeah. Best makeup, yeah, yeah. There you go. That thing. Um, yeah, now it's still, you know, I, I, I should have watched it again, but I didn't have time. I wanted to watch it before the show tonight, but that's all right. Abe, I know you had some reservations about watching The Fly. <laughs> why don't you share why and what you thought of, uh, you know, coming into this again? I've seen The Fly once in full as a child, and it has scarred me for life. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh no, he's transforming and his face is falling off. And also, she's going to give birth to a maggot, even though it's like a dream sequence. And, like, I've just never gone back to revisit it. So, unlike Jimmy, I've spent parts of today kind of, like, going through the movie just to familiarize myself with it. And, you know, it's it's not – I think, obviously, as an adult now, it, it's not as 
it, there's the sci-fi element of it. And I think that whenever I pass it in the in the video store, um, it's always like in that horror sci-fi area. So it kind of like blends. And so your, your mind kind of goes to, oh, it's a scary movie. But it, mm-hmm. it actually is on this on the surface of the sci-fi part. Pretty good sci-fi, actually. Yeah, <laughs> just no, absolutely. Cool stuff that, that Jeff Goldblum is doing for uh, for his research, and also um, mm-hmm. in terms of, like we're gonna get to like some of the practical effects and also the body the body horror stuff. But man, the '80s when you had to do everything in camera, that mm-hmm. stuff is crazy. I mean, I mm-hmm. had to rewatch the part where he first tries to to teleport uh, one of his uh, one of his uh, pet monkeys, I guess. Yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah, you know. Way that they kind of show that it reminds me of something out of the thing where it's obviously something that is there and they just like blighted it up and, and made it move but it's um it certainly is a movie that i don't really go back and you know look back on it and be like hey you know we should watch the fly right now it's it's one of those things where it does make me cringe still and then watching the fly mm-hmm. too i remember that as a kid as well and just thinking to myself this isn't ex- as good as i thought it was gonna be because there's uh, obviously oh yeah, the just, fly two is not good. It's not a good. I I did yeah, not like, the, like fly the end two. sequence where whatever happens to whatever come up as happens to that one guy. Like this is dumb. I, but I, I'm so fly, curious to watch the fly two because I haven't seen it in decades. So I'm like, man, yeah, I, I, yeah. I have like no memory of that movie. So I, I, it's I, a I, forgettable movie. I'm man. sure it is. It's very just, forgettable. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say checklist, uh, Christmas gift for uh, for Aaron and Abe, the the Brundle uh, pod, the, the uh, uh, complete fly collection nice. from the UK. Wow. Like, Coming your way. I look forward to it. <laughs> I I haven't I, I have seen part two and I don't remember anything about it other than not liking it. And uh, what's the just real quick? What's the setup? The setup is is, it, is, is she ends up having the baby. Right, and it's Eric yeah. Stoltz, and he, they they kind of put him under observation, and you know he's normal at first, but then it kind of turns into the fly. So, but the best thing you have to know about that movie is that Eric Stoltz wanted to be called uh, um, uh, Martin Brundle, which was his character name, Seth Brundle's son. He wanted to be called Martin Brundle during the entire filming of that movie. Mm. He was full oh. on met. Full on met. Oh, oh yeah, that's the super, you everything you need to know. Super method. Hey, that that. That is the level of excellence we expect from Eric Stoltz, isn't it? <laughs> it that's, that's, wow. that's 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 why he's no longer Marty McFly because he was too good. He was too, and he was, and he was, he was too much fun. That was the other reason. How can we talk about the Fly Two and not talk Daphne Zuniga? Can we? I mean, seriously, I can Daphne talk, Zuniga. I can tie it in because she stars as Princess Vespa in Spaceballs, which was directed by Mel Brooks, who produced this movie, The Fly, that we're talking about right now. Um, yeah. I am which is fascinating because Mel Brooks not only really picked it, really went out of his out of his wheelhouse, so to speak, his co- comedy wheelhouse mm-hmm. to pick some great directors to do things. Not only obviously Cronenberg for The Fly, but also um, David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch for Elephant Man. I mean, really, what a guy who was in tune with 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 great directors creating original visions. Really cool. And to his credit, he also mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, it says Brooks film production, but he like he really wanted to leave his name specific, like off the credits just to not like upset the tone that was being established. You don't see produced by Mel Brooks on these things. It's his right. mm-hmm. company, but he like he 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 knew that as well as far as what people associate with him with. So it's like I don't want my name to be like plastered on this movie and have people have the wrong idea. I want these artists to like really get what they're coming for here. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, yeah, I, I agree oh. though as far as him making these kind of yeah. decisions. Yeah, Aaron, I don't know if you time, remember, actually. but Aaron, I don't know if you remember, but I floated this idea a while back and uh, I didn't really have an answer for it. But I just it struck me as interesting this this sort of connection that exists out there between comedians and horror 
there's a pattern of people primarily known for comedy who then kind of go in and try their hand at horror. So you've got Jordan Peele, you've got Kevin Smith, Bobcat Goldthwait. And it's just, mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's something to that in terms of, you know, it's it's about I've, button pushing, it's about excess, it's about timing. I can't remember, if, well, I've, you, yeah, well, I can't remember can... if I've talked about that or written about that when I was talking a lot about Get Out or other features of recent years, but like, I... I Did you that... say Danny McBride, too, with Halloween? And mm-hmm. David it's Gold true, Green. yeah, I mean, coming up. Mm-hmm. I, in a weird sort of way, that The Fly kind of predated that, and it, it kind of... Uh, Set the I don't know I don't know obviously it didn't necessarily set the standard but that is kind of interesting I I had forgotten that Mel Brooks produced that it's yeah. uh, it Mike I mean it, it's exactly what you're saying I think the when it comes to comedy and horror the the similarity between them is that it's all it's all about setup and punchline so it's you know obviously in a horror movie the punchline isn't you know it leads to a big laugh but it leads to a big scare instead and I think that 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 kind of timing is something that you really acquire what whichever genre you're working in so you can i can see comedians or people that are known for comedic personas moving to horror because they know the the same basic structure that builds to what they're trying to accomplish right which is right like set 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 up however you can and then have that lead to a big payoff um, which is essential in either thing um uh, speaking to my thoughts on the fly real quick before i kind of get into a deeper discussion mm-hmm. um this movie came out in 1986. There's another 1986 movie that came out, and they both share something that never left my mind when I saw both of those things at a young age. Uh, that movie's Aliens. Do you guys know why? Why? Uh, because they both have crazy dream sequences in them where where uh, the, the xenomorph is coming at a Sigourney Weaver or Gina Davis is giving birth to a weird maggot thing. Um, <laughs> I, I saw both of these movies when I was quite young, and <laughs> it's that imagery that's just, oh my god, it's always stuck with me. Um... <laughs> I wouldn't say that The Fly is a movie that I've been terrified of in the same way that Abe was when, as a child, but it's it's certainly a movie that no, it's dis, it can be disturbing. And as I've watched it more right. and more over time, I, I th- that aspect, it's not necessarily dwindled, because I still think the kind of severity of things going on is pretty intense, but I appreciate everything that it's doing. I am a huge fan of this film. I would put it in my, I guess, top three of Cronenberg, because I think it's just excellent. Uh, but something I like about it is that it's so to the point, which mm-hmm. is interesting. I watched it again today. I watched it again with their Cronenberg commentary, which I haven't listened to before, by the way, too. And he's he's a great speaker. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Cronenberg as well, as far as not just his films, but as a director. And just like you're saying, Jason, he's a great, like, interactive filmmaker. He likes to not only, you know, make these movies, but interact with the fans or talk about his process or whatnot. He's not shy about it. He's not right. just he's not just there to be like, it's movie magic. Just let the movie speak for itself. Whatever. Like he's happy he's happy to delve right into all of his projects and talk about them. Right. Um absolutely. And so what regardless watching this film uh again and continuing to just look at all the things that are great about it, it's to the point as I was saying. It it's like the start of this movie is just so right to it. Like it's already at Goldblum and Gina Davis just talking like there it's not like an you don't get a her going to the science fair thing or whatever and meeting him and being introduced it's like they're already mid-conversation and it just goes from there and that's a lot of Cronenberg movies they're all like most of them are all in the 90 to 100 minute range with purpose which Mm -hmm. I really enjoy about his movies he just cuts to the chase um and along with that obviously the amazing makeup effects that we'll talk about the fantastic performances I think all around and the level of emotion uh, I mean, you know, in the midst of this sci-fi horror remake, by the way, one of the best horror remakes, let alone remakes, I think, of all time, one of them, as far as kind of improving upon what was already created, uh, there's so much emotion here as far as this story. I mean, Abe, you're, 
kind of mentioning too, where you mentioned the romance aspect of it. I think no, that was, that was uh, Jimmy. No. Jimmy, sorry, that Jimmy. was me. Jesus, I think the romance aspect. I mean that, regardless of how that pays off, uh, because it's not quite Beauty and the Beast. It plays a huge role in where we see these characters go from. We care about yep. Goldblum. We care about Davis. We care about Getz to an extent too. Like and it. Has such, a, has such a wonderful climax that's intensely violent, but also really affecting. When you're looking at the sad state of affairs that each of these characters is left with at the end of this thing, it's really, it's really, it's really heartbreaking to look at like where things started versus where things end. So I, I think for all those reasons, it's just a terrific movie across the board. Can I can I throw in also since you mentioned you know the the effects are pretty great the emotional beats are really res- resonate mm-hmm. can I also throw in it's well directed also throw in um, Howard Shore's score oh yeah that's, yeah. that's exactly oh, what I was yeah. going to say yeah I would say besides Videodrome I think the Fly is is probably his swan song I agree it gives a full added emotional music range to the movie absolutely I are, agree with you when you say swan song do you mean in terms of Cronenberg films. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because yeah. I'm thinking like Shore's done a couple other things too. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm because Videodrome is you know watching that again recently. It's very, it's there, but it's very barren, but it's very effective. But I agree, The Fly has a, a real strong emotional core. So uh, for sure, that's my that, that's my favorite Howard Shore from the Cronenberg. Something I was I was uh, picking up from the commentary track. Uh, just uh, he he was talking about how operatic the whole thing is, and how there even was like a, the idea of putting together like a, a fly opera. Um, and I can you can see that as far as like the kind of broad the broadness of this thing and how big the score does you know play a huge role in setting various tones and giving you emotional highs and big lows as far as in the same manner of what an, what an opera would kind of do which I would happily see. <laughs> Wait, so so I've actually seen the opera. Oh this yeah. Was, has, it, has anybody wow. else seen it? No. no. This was in like 2008, so like god, 10 years ago. It's it's pretty bonkers. <laughs> wow. As as you would expect, but it's like like kind of weirdly self-deprecating at the same time because it's 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 opera, you know? I imagine it had to be um, it's yeah. like the what like the Evil Dead stage play that they had for a while. Right. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's fun, but I I mean, I wouldn't see it again. It's just kind of a weird novelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking as someone who doesn't really have the palate for opera, so I can't really judge <laughs> if it's good on that level anyway, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting side project that I enjoyed it. Okay, well, we're not going to invite you to our out now opera special, I guess, but you know, we'll move on, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from there. Um, it, but isn't it interesting that that the fly score being so operatic and so grandiose would fit so wonderfully in a movie again that I had said was so barren, that was so closed off. I just it, it it works in a it works in a wonderful way to you know express and 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 widen the emotional core of the movie, but at the same time the movie doesn't have to be grandiose to house it, which I think is is the one of the one of the key elements uh key great things about the fly. Yeah, I mean we talk about the kind of mainstream accessibility of this film, but it it's still, you know, it feels not necessarily like a B picture because it has like everything it needs to kind of be a, a, a bigger thing than it is, but like it's fairly confined as a movie. Like it doesn't go very ah. far. The warehouse is obviously the main set. And you only go to like a few mm-hmm. offices or some shops like in the, in the, in the rest of the movie. Um, but it does feel like this kind of big accomplishment as far as like seeing this, the various stages that Goldblum goes through and uh, the emotional turmoil that this whole event provides and just the nature of, 
a teleportation machine existing to begin with. Um, and give and, and give and definitely give props to the to the uh, designers of those telepods, which of course yeah, I, I, was I, say I, found out, I found out in the in the making of is is a motorcycle carburetor thing turned upside down. But it oh. uh, just the, little things like that going okay, it is closed off, it is confined, but attention to detail of the the pieces and the things mm-hmm. within that within that world. It's oh right. that telepod is so cool. That's why it's that's what's housing the discs that I'm going to save you guys for Christmas. It's, it's funny. <laughs> I want I want to talk about these performances, but I want to get back. I want to touch on that real quick as far as that design goes, because I when I look at those things, I realize yeah, it makes sense. This is a Cronenberg film. You look at that, it's like yeah, that makes sense. But it's like yeah. looking at the today, I was just thinking there's a lot of you can see a lot of Geiger in this kind of design too. It's just like the oh, ridges yeah. of that thing around the the sides of it and everything. It, you know, you can I could you can see those being placed within like the Nostromo with a Xenomorph next to it and being like unaware that it's there just because it all fits together so perfectly. Mm. Yeah. But the, uh, the one design mm-hmm. element that I like, so so the pods are really iconic and they're cool looking. But I just one of the things that stuck with me since I was a kid, seeing the film is just when the door closes. There's like a circular yeah. disc yeah. goes yeah. up, yeah. goes down. They and those those little circular things get a lot of close-ups uh, <laughs> every time. And it's just there's something really menacing about it, even though its design is so simple. Just it's it's locked or it's not locked, right? Yeah. Just that mm-hmm. that detail always stuck with me. It's just kind of I interesting. I thought that was pretty cool and futuristic for something like that to be, you know, hey, I'm going to auto-unlock. It's almost like powered laces. Well, it's a good, uh, it's a mix of both good visual storytelling because that's all you need to yeah. know as far as how these doors work. Right. It's like, okay, just focus on that and people will get it. Also, it's, a, I mean, among the many themes that you can talk about with this film, one is, you know, kind of the, the AIDS epidemic that was breaking out in the 80s, but there's also the nature of technology and the evils of technology. I mean, that's the, the, the idea of a menacing door lock is uh, that's a, that's a right. good one to focus on. Um, is the central computer, um, is is it sarcastic? Well, Goldblum, I couldn't really tell. I, th- I think it has Goldblum's programming in it, so it has his voice, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's it's responding in the same, like, um, what is it? There's another example I could think of. Not Interstellar, but that does have sassy robots in it. We should sassy do a, robots? We should do a whole mm. show on sassy robots. Yeah, I was like, there's a lot of them. <laughs> but I mean, no, like, I mean, always, sassy robots that aren't, like, that aren't built on personality, but built on, I don't know, like, they're not, they're not, like, anthropomorphized robots. They're just, yeah. like, these, these, you know, faceless machines that happen to have a sense of attitude to them. Well, yeah, this computer's ability to answer hypothetical questions is pretty <laughs> remarkable. Um, <laughs> And it's always amusing to see these old computers that look like a very 1980s contemporaneous design, but are way more generous in what Hollywood believed computers would be capable of. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's like Alien in a nutshell, as far as all the like what convex or, uh, computer screens and everything, but you still have uh, fairly standard presentation of futuristic computers yeah. going on with, <laughs> with, with Mother and all that. Mother. Um, well, let's get into it then. Let's, let's get, get into let's some get... of the uh, the elements of the movie that that we uh, so much love, I guess. Well, I want to talk, talk about practical effects and I want to talk about these. Too. I want to get to these performances room. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I I do think there's a there's a trio of great people here, and you know Goldblum is. Let's let's, let's just talk about Goldblum. He is Daphne Zuniga's not in this one. Correct. So why are we talking about that? We're talking about Jeff. She's Goldblum. great. Oh my god. Oh okay. <laughs> I guess we can do that. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Seemingly in peak condition in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, yeah. 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 
I mean, he needed to in order to get, you know, when he finally gets to those scenes where it's like a full body cast to carry the weight of something like that. I mean, you'd have to be in shape. So, um, and of course, and of course, he remember he goes through the idea of becoming better first and becoming stronger. And so, you know, that's it's obviously key, you know, to 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 the, the whole idea of the transformation. It's it's definitely not just an emotional role. It's definitely a physical role. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, you kind of mentioned the the whole entire quirkiness of Jeff Goldblum, like you know his his physical tics and whatever else. Mm-hmm. I probably really helped out, especially when he's transformed into, you know, new Bl- Goldblum fly. Well, this it's a committed performance as far like I mean we know we all know Jeff Goldblum, we all know the mannerisms of him, his kind of personality, right. and while I think that works in certain films as far as. It doesn't require much of him beyond him playing, you know, the kind that the Jeff Goldblum you expect. This puts this is in that realm of like he's really putting on a performance here. He's putting on a show. He's not just playing a version of himself that works for the character. He's playing a, a, a fully realized persona. He's this, he's yeah. this scientist. He's smart. He's but he's nerdy and he's he's bookish. But he's and he's awkward. But he's also he's fit and he's like he's he's suited to becoming this thing and when he comes this thing he like takes on new personality traits um he becomes angry he becomes violent um, right he's also emotional and he's also romantic with gina davis like there's all these things going on it's like it's, yeah. a, it's a full this is performance a, here it's a layered performance mm-hmm. absolutely on 100 percent great performance too I, can I, I actually, the, the performance is great and I agree with everything you're saying, but rewatching it this time around, I wasn't as convinced that the film portrays him successfully as a nerd in the beginning um, for the drastic nature of the transformation to have impact. Like if he was nerdier or more awkward or if he was like an unsatisfying lover in the beginning or whatever, then the change would make a little more sense. It's sort of like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Like when he wakes up and there's a visible transformation and the changes are things that really do um, affect the characteristics. So he's scrawny and weak and now suddenly he's ripped. He's nerdy and wears glasses and now he doesn't need them. He lacks confidence and well, now he has the confidence. And I don't feel the change is quite so stark because like he, okay, so we learned that he wears the same clothes all the time and that's kind of a shorthand for presenting him as this weird guy. Like Einstein. Like Right, but the thing is, he's otherwise he's a fairly confident and outgoing guy, almost overconfident. Yeah, he's not. He's not an introvert. Right? I give you that. Like he's not. He's not. He's, he, mean, he is a nerd, but he's got a lot of game, and he's like weirdly buff from the start, right? And so when he turns out to be this muscle guy later <laughs> yeah. on, well, he doesn't not, seem he, as big a transition. He's not Jerry Lewis of the Nutty Professor. I get it. I mean, you're. you're <laughs> he's, he's not. He's not this. This. This clearly like broad character that conveys the idea of nerdiness. And at the same time, I can. For one thing, I guess I can credit. I can credit the film for just jumping to the point. As far as we got Goldblum, we got Davis was putting together. I don't need a whole, you know, ten minute prologue that features Jeff Goldblum doing nerdy things oh, to sure. make sure I understand he's a nerd. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. But, 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 but there's it's a problem about making him nerdier. It's more like I I, I, I understand what you're saying. I think there's there's, a, there's there's not enough sense for me that he is so reclusive that he has a hard time connecting with people, even though that's that reclusivity is what makes him a brilliant scientific brain. And I think the that's the characterization I feel the film is going for on some level, well, which I, I just seems think it's to be I think it contradiction. Moved, I think it's moved past that because he's technically already successful with this machine. He's already past the point that would, you know, if we were seeing him being like developing this thing and being frustrated at it or seeing all the trials or whatnot, maybe there's a persona there or a version of him there that we would then see him in this more reclusive nature. But I think because his 
machine is already like the time we meet him, he's already completed his device. Maybe he's past that. Maybe there's <laughs> plus 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 also it seems like more than a societal I mean a, a social awkwardness it's a societal awkwardness I mean we I think what you get from the character because we as, as you said Cronenberg dives right in it doesn't give you like the you know the backstory he dives right in is that here's a guy who obviously had enough charisma to talk to the higher-ups to give him money to leave him alone to do the thing so he knows what he's talking about he's charismatic enough to have gotten that off the ground but he's a guy who is at home being by himself and being doing his own thing. It's, a, it's again, not a, a, a societal awkwardness. So wh where does he go in terms of when he's at that meeting and he wants to talk to somebody? He goes to the most beautiful woman in the in the in the room. You know what I mean? He's not. So he, he his 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 societal awkwardness is very base. And that's what I got from it. And that, that again, he does have a charisma and maybe the nerd the nerd aspect has to do with being you know savvy with computers and teleportation and all that kind of stuff. But that he's smart, but that that he's very base. So so he goes through. Remember, he goes through all the, the moments in the movie very base like. You know, he's he's considered a genius. He uh, he 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 feels that sense of power. He you, he abuses that sense of power. He feels like he's invincible. It's all the basic steps of somebody who doesn't have the higher social um, awareness. It's somebody who has a very base effect. I can't wait for the prologue in the inevitable remake where it's like some kid in like a cornfield when he's young reading a quantum physics book and has like a bow tie and glasses and like a fly buzzes over his head some, <laughs> some nonsense like that cut, cut to title really, card really on the nose what 20 years later and it's like chiseled army hammer or something walking around <laughs> is that weird that i want to see that movie I'm, told... I'm actually i am shocked that it hasn't been remade yet i am shocked it hasn't been remade it's been threatened like in the last it's yeah, been... I know. We they keep threatening us, but it, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, D Disney bought Fox, so maybe they'll fast track it now. They're like, okay, guys, we can finally get that fly yeah. remake going to get our mouse yeah, credibility. Yeah, I don't think it'll be the PG thirteen rated with like uh, it'll have yeah. a happy ending. It'll be perfect. I, I like this idea that you know, like sort of the the base kind of acting on instinct in a way because that becomes a huge like thematic factor later on, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of animal yeah. or insect instinct. And I, yeah, I, I like that explanation because it does kind of remove this central motivation that's kind of weird about the beginning, which is why would he, why is he at this party and why would he invite her over, especially if he's so protective of his research, <coughs> just to impress a woman. So I guess, yeah, I guess no that less. kind of, exactly, right? It seems arguably out of step, um, mm -hmm. but I buy that explanation. I do think, like, what's interesting is that at one point he mentions about how, you know, I've been cooped up too long. I need sort of outside feedback. And I like the suggestion, possibly, that, you know, he's so, like, mired in his research that he's actually quite lonely and wants to reach out and connect with somebody, which would be really interesting. And it would, it would go a long way in making everything that follows a lot more impactful. Um, and I think, you know, we focus a lot on the change that he undergoes after the experiment. But one thing that I think gets lost is sort of the way he's changing as a result of this connection mm -hmm. he's making with Veronica. So. This includes the fact that his wardrobe changes midway through the film because she's out buying new clothes for him, mm -hmm. right? Like the one scene where she's buying the leather jacket gets interrupted because fucking John Getz gets like... He's jealous, come on! And he puts on like this giant dramatic thing in the store. It's on his knees. That ends up what the scene becomes about, but this detail that she's buying clothes is really important in establishing not only that they're falling in love, but that she is gradually bringing him out of his shell. Right. 
and she's pulling the humanity out of this overly scientific, hyper-rational guy, which is critical because later on her role is entirely about like finding the humanity in this guy who's literally becoming a, a thing. Uh-huh. So I feel like yeah, yeah. That, this is where I feel like the film is almost too lean. Uh, like a, another minute here, a minute there of these sort of coming out of his shell moments, I think might have given us a deeper sense of their relationship and the stakes of the relationship, which I wouldn't have minded. I feel like upon this uh, rewatch, I can I can agree. It's with a, that it's almost shocking I, yeah. that the movie is that short. It's literally, I think, just under like an hour and forty minutes running time. Yeah. Today that wouldn't happen. That would not happen exactly. with this yeah, movie. I think this is super uh, fascinating that I didn't realize that it was only like an hour and thirty eight minutes or whatever the case is. Like, yeah. wow, this is much shorter than I remember it to be. But For it packs sure. a wallet. Like what you guys are all saying with all the characters, especially like uh, we should probably talk about the other characters, too. But um, oh, certainly. Zuniga? Yeah, we should. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, but Gina, like what you guys are saying, everything that Jeff Goldblum has done in terms of his performance from, you know, dork or super scientist, super genius guy to hunk, whatever the case is. Mathematician. Gina Davis is also super emoting in this movie as well. I mean, she's kind of. Uh, I, I I guess that it's one of those things where it's only three people, right? <laughs> Minus like a few side characters. So everyone has to bring it. You know what I mean? And if, mm-hmm. if somebody didn't bring it, you would definitely notice. And I don't think it would be remembered so fondly. The flyumvirate, as we call it. Exactly. Um, Gina Davis, um, who was uh, dating Jeff Goldblum at the time, which I think could explain how good their chemistry is, or helps explain how good their chemistry is. Um, she, at that time, was also known mainly for comedies. Like, she wasn't doing... Mm-hmm. You know, much drama, little on horror. Um, but I, I yeah. was that around Accidental Taurus, I think. It's was bef- it was it's that... before Accidental Taurus is nine is ah. a couple years later. That's where she she wins. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. So it's it's somewhat early on in her grip. But yeah, she's terrific in this movie. I mean, she has to do. She really is. She has to carry the weight of this thing going on around you know Goldblum's character and still make her you know a res- a relevant presence in this film. And she absolutely does it. And I, I, and I and I do know that that Goldblum had obviously suggested Gina, and yeah. I think it's it, it's a brilliant suggestion because without chemistry, without on screen chemistry, the movie doesn't work. So it, it it it's key to not only you know the chemistry between them, but keeping the the elements of the story going. So it's it's huge. Which even even from their first meeting, you have to get that immediately. If you don't get it immediately, it doesn't work. So it's it's key, and he obviously knew that, and was a great suggestion. I agree. Yeah. Also, I mean, so you mentioned it being a sort of a superior remake because it kind of not just sort of improves upon, expands upon the original film, but it really recasts it within the cultural context of the eighties. Mm-hmm. And of mm-hmm. course, the the sort of go to uh, allegory is is AIDS. And I think that like, Cronenberg himself has said about, you know, it's not necessarily about AIDS, but it's about aging and disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, on top of sort of the, the kind of primal and universal fears that horror genres are always tapping into, like fear of the unknown, fear of strangers, fear of death, particularly violent death. This one is no different. But like it works on two registers. Right. And this is why Gina Davis's performance is so critical. On the one hand, it's it's about this fear and the horror of dying of disease and particularly of like a really aggressive degenerative disease which puts us sort of you know in in a sympathetic mode with jeff goldblum but if you see the film from her perspective working on a second register right which is it's about the fear of dying of a disease but it's also about the fear of watching someone you love wasting away Hmm. and getting ravaged by a disease as well and that that component only really resonates if she brings her 
really knocks it out of the park, which she does. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really good point. And th- I think that's why the love story works. That, that's simply why the love story works, because when you are in that kind of situation and, and, and to to uh, watch someone you love go through the the pain and agony that he's going through and it's fun. There's a false note. It's not going to work again. I, that's why I credit the movie for just being able to pick up where it does, where I don't yeah. need too much of an explanation on, you know, where she's, you know, her being a journalist and him being a scientist and where they came from. I'm just happy seeing them. Like they're already in the room together talking. We're moving forward. We don't, mm-hmm. I, I can, I, I don't disagree with you, Mike, that like, yes, it could be nice to see a few more minutes here or there to kind of flesh things out a bit more. But at the same time, you know, I'm watching. Flesh. I'm watching. I just the, took a shot. I know. I'm. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm watching the fly. I mean, I want. I want to see a movie <laughs> about this fly, and I'm just so happy that within this, you know, horror film that comes down to you know one main thing as far as what we're you know visually seeing, there are these great performances to really flesh out the rest of the film <laughs> so well mm-hmm. you also got to re- you also got to remember that this is a movie of the 80s having grown up in the 80s it's there's a very specific mindset i'm sure in the mind of every filmmaker that said that you can't have your movie be long now you can you know before it was like oh you couldn't have it over two hours and and you know even at, at one point the abyss james cameron had his movie over two hours and they said you and this is after he had hits and they said you mm-hmm. can't have it over two hours so he cut the end off his movie that would never happen today mm-hmm. but you got to no, remember back never. then then they were coming at it from the point of view of this is what we have to do. So those scenes, I do believe if Cronenberg was working today, he would probably have those scenes. But he, in his mindset at that time, there was a very specific set of time frame rules that studios had that that movies released had. So I'm sure that all went into his thinking and stuff. But of course, you can see now every movie is over two hours. So mm-hmm. What's I, I do think mm-hmm. we have to, we do have to take it on faith that they've fallen in love because. I don't. One of the things that's a little unclear to me in this film is the timeline. So, like, one, how long are the experiments going on? So, in other words, how long has their relationship been going on? Mm-hmm. And then, secondly, how long is he sick? Because we do seem to lose some sense of how gradual the the, the change into a monster is. Every time we see him, we we've jumped to a new stage of makeup, and it's markedly more gross than the last one. But it's not, it's not clear if this is happening over. Weeks or months, I think. No, the film takes place over twenty-four hours. Sure. <laughs> oh, right. Wow. <laughs> just a fast, just a fast transformation. 20, twenty-four wow. and a half hours, maybe twenty-five hours. Yeah, that's. Tough. I've always, I've yeah. always, I've always, and this is just my own, I guess, thought on it. I always thought it was like about two months. It's like about how much time passes. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Fair if, enough. I'll if, take. If, if not one month, but I mean, I think it's like about two. Like, cause there's a period where she leaves and stuff happens. <laughs> and he keeps to but, but like this is where when when you mentioned that it, it like is mainly confined to the apartment slash laboratory uh-huh. um apart from a handful of scenes like out in restaurants or in the marketplace a lot of their interactions and their romance is framed by the science of it right whether they're working on documenting the experiments or whether they're talking about some other thing or making love or whatever it's still screen written to coincide with dialogue that pertains to the main scientific plot mm-hmm. so i feel like we have to fill in some of the gaps on our own to understand that that they are falling in love. I'm not particularly satisfied that the film convinces me that they've developed a deep bond, even though that's clearly what's happening. I feel like I have to kind of square that circle myself because the film is kind of not giving us that much evidence on. Yeah, and there's a contextual thing there as far as I can appreciate certain films for letting me just fill in that blank where others I criticize for that very reason as well, which is, you know, 
it just i mean it just comes mm-hmm. comes with comes with the movie comes with my subjective opinion on the movie and it's like i again it's it's like i watch this and i'm just like all right they're there like they're doing what they need to do um, right mm-hmm. where other movies i feel like there there's other elements that aren't doing as much as they could to satisfy me in, in that area I want to, I want to get to all the disgusting stuff in this movie, but let's make a real, let's make a quick note of John Getz before we move on from all the actors. Um, I think John Getz. Getz, John Getz is, I think a whore, a, a, like a, just a giant asshole in this movie, but I think he's absolutely terrific at playing that asshole. That, that's, it's that's, kind that's of, it's, it's sense. kind of, a, it's kind of a thankless role, quite frankly, because you know, yeah. you, 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 you're there to move the plot along. You're there to play the asshole. So it's, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right. So Getz, Getz, Getz did this. It walks a really good line between being an asshole and then having that small bit of caring that you think about, you know what I mean? So that's what makes you feel a little bit bad when he starts to get attacked at the end. And so it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's again, it's a thankless role of the movie. I, I think if you look at the line between this and Blood Simple, though, it's just such a wonderful contrast between this, right. like, this dude that's, like, covering up a murder and getting in, like, all the wrong situations. And now he's just, like, this spineless wimp that's, like, begging for <laughs> Gina Davis at the store and gets horrible things happen to him. He gets, like, uh, like body mutil- mutilation happen to him at the end of this thing and everything. Yeah. I know it's gross. Yeah. I just think workplace harassment. That's all I can think of. <laughs> that's they're, also very a, true. Mike, they're not at the workplace. That's, that's yeah. Like, oh, oh, I see. Yeah. It's it's public. It's, it's way worse. <laughs> this guy, this guy will be trending on Twitter if he did these things today. <laughs> like just getting on the floor of a store. Oh boy! All right, let's get to the disgusting stuff <laughs> of this movie. Um, not not unfamiliar to Cronenberg as far as like, hey, we're gonna get a little you know bloody and nasty in this movie, but yeah, things happen. Uh, we get what some, yeah. uh, some wrists that break, uh, some legs that get melted off. Oh, and the complete deterioration of Judge Boldum's face and other parts of his body throughout this movie. Um, <laughs> bit, how, does, how, how does Brando fly? Eat? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's not good. It's not a good look. And to think, nothing was wrong with his device. <laughs> there was no problem with the fucking, like, he could easily he could teleport. There was no problem there. It just, Fly really screwed it up, but made things all the better. Yeah. They made things all the better as far as the visual effects and makeup and stuff for this movie. Um, right. Any standout things you want to talk about in this, in this regard? How about Abe? Abe, since you, you've now revisited this movie... <laughs> Where, where, do you, where are you coming at it as far as the the, the work done? What are, what, what, are, what are Abe's top five gross-out moments? <laughs> oh, no. All, all of it after he starts, like, getting bubbly face. Um, but, <laughs> no, no, no. When watching it again and you sort, of, you sort of see that, you know, he is wearing a suit. It's, it's obviously he looks more bulky. So uh, it's less spooky, I guess, the second time around. <laughs> and literally, it is the second time around. But... Um, I enjoyed actually a lot of uh, a lot of the body horror stuff, and that's kind of um, you come to appreciate it is what I guess uh, I'm trying to say because I had never seen the 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 thing, and then Aaron was like, "You have to watch the thing," and I remember watching it and thinking to myself, "This is crazy for the time and how they did this to the humans, the dogs, etc." And so just to see this, you know, continue on with in camera effects. And the way that Cronenberg, I actually really liked the way that they did the teleportation stuff. It actually looked really seamless mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. he's experimenting with the with the stockings and also with the apes and whatever else. It's actually really, really well done. Yeah, they like, use uh, they use uh, motion controlled cameras, which is uh, like mm. what Zemeckis was used too- in um, Back to the Future Two later on. Like, and it was uh, the flies. I think they used they used that kind of 
technology a couple times before in films. Yeah, the fly really puts that forward in a great way. Yeah, it did wow. a good job because you kind of I was looking for a cut sequence and they they fooled me. But in terms of the body horror stuff, all of it, especially when he starts mutating at the end there, kind of turning into like real fly. But I mean, it's <laughs> what I like about it is that there's Cronenberg kind of just goes uh, crazy with it, especially when when Gina Davis slaps the lower jaw off. And he has a cut to the lower jaw, and the lower jaw starts moving. It's like, yeah, okay. I mean, that's certainly something that I guess he would do. Um, but for the most part, it's it's a job well done. I mean, again, you guys have talked about the transformation aspects of it all. Um, but job well done on, on the, the makeup and also on just the way that, um, again, the writing of, of making Jeff Goldblum understand that he's going through this, and he is ambivalent about it, right? He doesn't want to hurt Gina Davis. But at the same time, he also wants to become Brundlefly superior than man. Politician. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say. I was gonna yeah. say one thing. One thing for me, as far as the makeup effects go. I mean, obviously, the thing has great makeup effects. There's something about you know, the, obviously, the practicalness of, of that of that stuff. Going, being able to go Gonzo and not having any limits. You know, in terms of that stuff, that's great. But for me, especially in specifically in the thing, is the added added story element or Cronenberg element or anybody's you know element of adding emotion to the makeup. It reminds me of watching the first episode of The Walking Dead where you 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 connect with a zombie on an emotional level and that make that besides the makeup and the performance makes you remember it. And I remember mm-hmm. The baboon turning inside out. I remember, um, you know, the feeling of helplessness, you know, that he feels when he when he can't control the the the, the added emotion. Even you know at the end when he's you know pointing the gun to his own head or whatever, adding emotion to enhance the makeup and make you remember and the performance is in this movie is key and it's what makes the fly so great especially at that point where you've lost goldblum altogether as far as the actor and all you have to work with are the eyes because there's no mouth anymore it's just this big fly head and it's disgusting but the 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 fact that they put these eyes there and he knows just how to frame it so you can you know see this thing responding to its situation it is it's incredibly effective i agree yeah. Do you think that, like, you know, just thinking of that, you know, we're in an age nowadays, everything's CG, we can do anything, anything you want on film, yet there's something missing about that kind of seeing an actor in that, with just the hours of makeup, under, you know, you get that performance that I don't know if you always get with a CG beast or a CG monster, I mean, there's something about that, which I guess is why I miss practical seeing practical use more is that you you do it feels real and not just in the grotesqueness of it or the the gore but the the performance as well i mean when that shit's on you you feel it and sometimes it it helps the performance in a lot of ways i mean yeah there's a the tangibility is certainly key to why certain films resonate more at the same time I i do think the right films uh or not the right but the 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 few films or the selection of films that you can name that do heavily incorporate CG and CG characters they stick out in the same way that movies like The Fly and others that you can specifically name offhand are stand out as well. I mean I don't I don't think there's mm. a 
I don't think there's a shortage of either one, I, but I at the same time, like, we can praise practical effects, but there's probably plenty of films that have practical effects that you don't remember whatsoever and are terrible. Oh, for sure. I mean, so it's, I mean... Oh, I remember all of them. I, I love Yeah, I'm sure movies. you do, Jimmy. I mean, we can talk, <laughs> we can talk about the, we can talk about the boogans all we want to. But, uh, oh, God, I love the boogans. Thank you for reminding but like, me. I, I mean, I can look now to, you know, like, for example, Andy Serkis's various roles in these kind of films of the play, the, the Planet of the Apes, sure. the new Planet of the Apes trilogies, sure. and you remember the those performances because there is there i mean for one thing there is an actor behind there but i do think weta has done a terrific job in creating a figure that you want to you know connect with in some way yes there are plenty, sure, that, sure. There are plenty that don't as well i don't and i don't disagree i do think that the tangibility of practical effects is something that you always look forward to seeing in certain movies especially at this point where you know the late, the late 80s to the early 90s when they're kind of phasing out it's still at the like the best possible point it can be as far as the technology compared to previous times. So like, yeah, it stands out because it looks so great at this point. Like, is it I, wrong, by the way, though, that I want to hear the Scholastic version now? His opinion on the of the Boogans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to hear his oh take on that. I don't know. That'll be that'll be next Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we really need to do a, a show on the Boogans. Just you, you've talked Bogan, about it in other that's... episodes of these October yeah. shows. <laughs> not enough. You could write books. You could write books on the Boogans, and there would be uh, not enough. Mike, did you have anything you wanted to add as far as the visual effects go? Are concerned? About the Boogans? <laughs> well, I I was listening to you guys saying, like, yeah, CGI, it's it's so much more advanced, and you can do all these expressive things, and yet it just doesn't look and feel as real as the, as the things. So take, like, old Empire Yoda versus CGI Yoda. There's more things you can do with his expressions with the CGI, but it still never looks as real as this clunky little puppet from the older films, right? There's something kind of physical and tactile about that. And so I agree with everything you're saying. I wonder in addition to that, whether or not having decades now of people kind of growing up around the sort of behind the scenes knowledge and all, all of that is part of the sort of consumption of a movie is the, the, how did it get made and DVD extra features. Yeah. So I just feel like, I mean, all of us were, we're all very film literate, but if you speak to, you know, civilians, <laughs> uh, I feel like whenever they see a special effect, they're more likely to say, oh, you know, it's it's CGI. And of course, they mistakenly think CGI stands for computer graphics, even though, it, you know, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's just kind of a, a an assumption out there that, oh, it's all taken care of in a computer. Whereas if you go to these older films, there's still a bit of mystery as to how they may have pulled some of this stuff off. And We've talked about this on the Ghostbusters recording, you know, as, as big and, and expensive as those special effects are. One of my favorite effects is a tiny, tiny one, which is like the eggs frying on the kitchen counter. Because uh -huh. mm -hmm. I, I don't yeah. I can't say for sure how they did that. It's so small and simple. Um, and so to that effect, like in this film, one of my favorite sort of body horror effects is when he peels off his fingernail and then it like squirts out that, that oh. like pus all over the mirror. <laughs> It's it's presumably way more simple and way less elaborate than some of the full body effects that take over like in the last act of the film. But it's still like just small, creepy, really effective, squishy and, and just, you know, it, it's 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 yummy. Yeah. <laughs> two two, 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 yummy two, two quick right. things about the point you were making, like um, as far as how do they do that type of things? Uh, I still don't know so how some of the Day of the Dead special effects are achieved by Tom Savini. There are a couple. Oh like, my god! There are absolutely. There are a couple things where I'm just like I don't quite know how that was made to be possible. Um, and I and I and I'm sure I could look it up and figure that out, but I've refused to just because I'm just happy to not know. 
Um, also, um, I, my lovely girlfriend and I were watching uh, Little Shop of Horrors not too long ago, and friend of the show Scooter um, arrived. If you know Scooter, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. he was not. Scooter is a year older than, or he's he's a week older than me. Yet, and he's very film literate. Yet he was convinced that the that the Seymour or, or Audrey Audrey too uh, was a computer effect. He couldn't fathom the idea that this thing was a puppet was a giant animatronic puppeteer thing that was taking place uh, which I, I think yeah it just goes to show how, how great practical effects can be or how how being raised in an environment like this you you it's hard it can be hard to separate what you just interpret everything to be these days compared to how things are actually accomplished yeah and, and I don't want to I don't want to come across at all disparaging for no, people I don't think you are digital I think, effects yeah, yeah yeah I think um yeah. I mean I think it's tremendously difficult work and and that's all great but uh, I think it's kind of a go-to, maybe a shortcut for understanding how things got made. If you can just say, oh, you know, it's a computer and you have no idea what that entails. Which, oh, you know, it's buttons and clicking and that's how they do it. It's become kind of a shortcut to understanding like how complex some really practical onset effects can be. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, it's the work of, you know, sometimes thousands in the same way that like hand-drawn animation seems to get a lot of praise. It's like, I miss hand-drawn animation when, you know, we have all these 3D animated films. Like, those films aren't, like, it's not like it's they're coming out of an assembly line either. Like, there's so many people yeah. that work on these things just to make, like, mm-hmm. water in the background to seem kind of okay. Like, right. it's ridiculous how much work goes into these things. Well, I mean, you have Leica films, uh-huh. which are, are, are oh, sure. probably my favorite. And, like, literally, they have people, yes, I, I'm hired to make shoes, yeah. That's what I'm doing. I'm making shoes. I'm making hundreds of different pairs piece, of shoes. Little <laughs> shoes on little for one character. I gotta make a little shoe. Something ridiculous like that. But you watch it, and what a rewarding experience to to get to see that to see that all that art to see all that that beauty on display. It's ah, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I think it for me it, it tends to come down to I'm never going to be against the medium something presents it in. Um, I'd rather just you know talk about analyze critique what have you the film that resulted from all of this effort they came out of something and you know sometimes mm-hmm. yeah it's going to involve practical effects sometimes it's going to involve cg effects but you know what i'm for the most part sure that all of those people worked very hard to make this thing work as best as it can which is i guess comes down to my especially, lack of cynicism when it comes to these things especially in the boogans that took a lot of work yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. the boogans too i said was twice as much work I wish, I wish there's a Boogans too. I cannot believe you tease me like that. There, I wish. I, I just was assuming oh. there was a Boogans too. It just seems like a movie that no. had a sequel. No, in the '80s there was a ton of movies that didn't get sequels. It wasn't this. That wasn't the thing back then. You know, I mean, not to not to go too off topic, but The Fly was an unusual. They didn't have a lot of sequels. The Burning didn't have sequels, especially the yeah. eighty early eighties horror movies. They didn't have sequels, yeah, you're right? Not wrong. Unless yeah, it was the, Halloween. Yeah, it's yeah. just the franchises. Right. I mean, the Fridays, obviously, and Nightmares mm-hmm. eventually. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, eventually, yeah. But we never got a Boogans too. So upsetting. <laughs> well, well, Jimmy. Well, pa- let well, me let me ask you guys a question here. <laughs> okay, go on. Because, oh, because no. I've talked about um, Cronenberg's filmography and kind of how maybe this was like a, a plateau to springboard off of. Um, can you guys talk about what you guys meant by that in terms of the rest of his movies? And maybe this is 
a, a super complete movie versus something else that he did or this opened up more doors for him what did you guys mean by that i mean i i i i jumped into that one where like you know his next film after this is dead ringers where you get this amazing mm-hmm. double performance from jeremy irons um mm-hmm. could have easily got an oscar nomination for that movie um yeah yeah you're right then he then he like what he did he adapts uh, naked lunch which is like that's naked a lunch. that's that's far out there for cronenberg as far as like what he's right. what he's accomplishing and butterfly crash like these other movies uh, it's just like he didn't really do straight horror. I yeah, mean, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the say, same. I mean, it's the same way yeah. where I, I tend to look at this as a lot of directors where I, I see them as like ones that are I consider auteurs where they seem to have like this ultimate version of what they do as what they're known for. And like I've looked at like Tim Burton, you see like I don't know Batman Returns like the ultimate ter- sleep C P Hollow like the ultimate Tim Burton film as far as mood, score, use of Johnny Depp, all these things that are like, of course it's Tim Burton. Look at just one frame of this movie and you can see. The mm-hmm. fly feels like that is in kind of the the middle ground of David Cronenberg because yeah, before all of this he has a lot of his more cult favorite horror films and things like mm-hmm. that where after this yes it does go, it does descend more into drama or existential crisis movies or psychological thriller type films uh, yeah still, well, still, well, body horror still becomes like a central theme and a good majority of them probably i guess all of them I'm trying to think of which one that doesn't maybe cosmopolis has maybe the least amount of body horror in it but they all it there is kind of like a like you're saying abe you mentioned it, like a plateau is a good word for it it does kind of as far as his horror goes it doesn't really ascend from there to anything more horrific after that well yeah. I, I did you know Cronenberg did talk a little bit uh you know about certain things and he was very specific about how his early stuff he felt like he wasn't really making horror movies he was just you know playing safe within the genre so doing his interesting stories within that genre was a safe place to be and it felt like with the fly it was his most commercial it was his most um possibly possibly his most successful box office wise and stuff and maybe he felt like at that time you know he wanted to you know keep telling those weird stories but leave the genre aspect behind because then you get into dead Rings yeah. and naked lunch and, and butterfly and crash and so so it, you know while, while he i think maybe started off within the genre not to become a horror director but just to play safe and 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 have people join him for these odd things it felt like he was like okay i can tell that same interesting odd story without the horror element necessarily i can go into suspense i can go into drama i can go into whatever and of course he gets more and more accomplished as that list goes along as far as i'm concerned yeah, and, yeah and I, think, all... I think evidence of that maybe the best evidence of that is the fly feels arguably the most accessible to non-cronenberg fans oh for sure <laughs> yes yeah. right I mean, absolutely presumably have absolutely. to be a horror fan he's it's not the only one like i think dead zone, dead zone is, is pretty, pretty accessible yeah for right. sure. it's it's a, it's a genre film with perhaps like a cronenberg bent to it much much in the way the fly clearly does but so he's not he's not allergic to sort of more mainstream genre fare but i think this one is the one that you don't have to have this sort of sort of cultish price of admission to just appreciate it as a as a horror film slash sci-fi slash love story well dead zone works yeah. as like because it's a stephen king thing which was huge at that point yeah, as well yeah. like you know that's a that's a name that's, a, that, that's the draw it's stephen king's the dead zone it happens to have cronenberg and christopher walkie giving an amazing performance <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but, oh my gosh so good but yeah the fly i mean yeah that works on its own level as far as it has stars at that like jeff goldman's a star at that point gina davis is coming is up and coming at that point like everyone involved and there's a cell there as far as you know the uh, high concept but yeah after that it becomes more prestige it becomes more prestige drama type stuff as far as having jeremy irons in your movies or the various other places it goes ray fines jude law 
July 1999. Viggo Mortensen. The big Viggo Mortensen. Would you agree that some of the more kind of like Cronenberg reinventing himself has has been more recent than ever before, right? I feel like when he did History of Violence and then he did Eastern Promises, which I think is arguably mm-hmm. his last film that is sort of unambiguously solid. That, um, that's my favorite Cronenberg film, by the way, Eastern Promises. I well, the absolutely thing is, love yeah, it. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, when he started good. doing those films, people were like, oh, I guess he's, I mean, these are very sort of very thriller-oriented films. He's like, oh, where's the body horror? I guess he's not doing the kind of fleshy, squishy stuff anymore. It's like, no, he absolutely is. It's there, yeah. He's just, <laughs> he's just doing it. He's experimenting with this on the body of Viggo Mortensen. For sure, mm-hmm. yeah. That, that's, that's where even in like Eastern Promises, I mean, when when Viggo Mortensen slaps that dude's face off with a, the hot coffee mug, there's still body horror there. No, that's history. History of no. violence. History of violence. Yeah. History of violence. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Well, you okay. see the you see the aftermath of the horrendous things he does to save his own life in that movie. Right. And it's crazy. Right. right. Eastern, well, I, I guess Eastern, more... Eastern Promises has the spa battle where yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, Lord, yeah is just just be destroying people and also getting beaten himself and he's so vulnerable because he's naked the whole time and it's like oh my god this is yeah this is right out of a Cronenberg film it's hard to not think right about right it. yeah, yeah. it's the shot of what's his face um Stephen McCaddy after he gets shot and they just they do that close-up that's oh, yeah, that he's, is, uh, he's gurgling yeah. he's still yeah. gurgling too yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's it's less it's less about like yeah these movies still contain violence uh, that happened to human bodies but it's more I think there was a little bit of confusion or maybe people were thinking Cronenberg was going in a completely new direction because there didn't seem to be this recurring thematic motif of issues of flesh issues of bodies mm-hmm. and like yeah connecting to, to different sort of fleshy or organisms and things like that which you see in Naked Lunch you see in Existence mm-hmm. and these things on the face of it seem like more conventional thriller narratives, but no, actually he's still very preoccupied with issues of flesh and body. He's just kind of mapping this on to like this new sort of laboratory for him, which is Viggo Mortensen's uh, sort of nakedness and, and, and kind of corporeality, I guess that's kind of where he's towing around. It's after mm-hmm. that, that he becomes, I think a little less interesting because Cosmopolis is very strange. Um, insofar as it's a Cronenberg film and you think really right and and map to the stars mm-hmm. is is kind of a I think a misfire for a lot of people yeah but I, think I was gonna fine. say but I, I was I gonna say but but the key is he passed it along to his brood so Brandon Cronenberg did antiviral and to me that's old school Cronenberg I love that movie and it's uh-huh. interesting because I remember interviewing him and saying hey is there a is there a weird fascination with flesh with that you know flowing throughout the Cronenberg household and he said oh, I never really watched my dad's movies which is strange because that movie is so so Cronenberg-esque mm. um but I would say I would say gee yeah, jump from me jump from Eastern Promises and go to antiviral you won't be disappointed and if you want to like no. look, look at a weird cousin of a Vincenzo Natale's, uh, Splice is just like straight out, <laughs> yes. straight out of the um, out of the Cronenberg playbook. Um, I feel like at some point in one of these episodes we'll do like a full retrospective on um, all of Cronenberg's work because uh, there's a, there's a lot to discuss between all these films. Um, yeah. But before we, I guess, move forward, I want to ask if there's any other things we want to talk about with the fly. I know we've kind of moved past it for a little bit, uh, but is there anything else we want to touch upon? That we haven't there was the, the, there was by the way Cronenberg did write a fly follow-up and he said it wasn't really a remake it was more of a sequel or a sidebar but it was a meditation on flyness 
damn, I wish I could have seen that movie. <laughs> like, so just like people dressed really cool and Disney oh. stuff? Or? I have a question about, so I can't remember who, is it uh, maybe Jason who brought this up, the societal awkwardness? Yeah. Yes. As a way in which to kind of understand uh, the Seth Brundle character and how he behaves. I find that really interesting because, like, we know the film is concerned with, like, the ravages of a disease. Um, or maybe just aging in general. Um, I think like there's a, there's a perfectly reasonable way to approach this character as someone who's, you know, approaching middle age. Maybe he isn't as sexually active as he used to be. Maybe his hairline is thinning and he's not happy about that. And so the fact that upon going through the telepod, he feels so energized and useful is like potentially an interesting commentary on like the misguided hope that people give themselves in the face of inevitable decay and death and what that might look like. Because people are always looking for like some miracle contraption on TV or or that's going to get rid of your love handles or try this new diet, uh, fad diet and get all excited about it. I feel like that tells you a lot about what people's anxieties are um, about their own bodies and their images, Mm -hmm. especially as their bodies start to slip away from them as they get older, as they get sicker. Right. Are you saying you see that in in Brundle and what he's doing here? I'm saying I think the film doesn't quite capitalize on that in a way that I would have found really interesting because there's that period of the film in which he convinces himself he's become sort of a Superman. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And he feels really good about the changes, but in a kind of generic way, not in any way that tells us about like what social anxieties he might have had about his own social standing and his own body based on certain societal pressures and certain norms. Um, mm-hmm. he's just, he just feels good, period. He doesn't feel good. Like, Hey, you know, I used to be really awkward about this and now I'm not so not, this is the Spider-Man thing. I used to, you know, not feel confident about anything, but now I do something has changed within me. And I'm wondering specifically if that transformation says anything about prevailing notions of male anxiety and social attitudes toward masculinity that he was feeling really pressured about, because in contrast, her fears are so explicitly feminized. Right. Her deepest and darkest fears center around notions of motherhood. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's an imbalance there that doesn't necessarily hurt the film, but are interesting to me. And, and perhaps like there's a like a better developed version in my brain. But, um, but I was going to say was a little but, bit more thorough on this point. To counter, to counter that, I would say, though, that even in the midst of becoming better and becoming more strong or, or whatever, you know, he, he you know, he felt uh, becoming better. He still even even when he leaves the house once, he still stays within that within that frame. He's still not not strong enough to go, OK, I'm going to now bring this on the world. He still stays within that frame. And when he does go out that one time, he brings back a hot girl to his place to show her the the all that he can do and all that stuff. So he's still stuck even with betterment or his his perceiving of, of having been be, having betterment he's still stuck within that frame within that within that house within that warehouse yeah I mean, but that's that's to me a very sort of gendered way in which he's kind of expressing what he believes are sort of newfound privileges and newfound mm-hmm. entitlement that he has as sort of this new new step in human evolution right before he realizes he's got it totally wrong and so i'm wondering which are, which are also <coughs> side, they're also side effects of something he didn't expect it's not like he did the teleportation ex, you know hoping that he might become some kind of super bench i mean right. he, he, it, it was right. more, it was right. more of oh in addition to i've solved the problem of being motion sick uh, by having teleportation i also appear to be getting a, becoming a bigger faster stronger version of myself and that's cool i guess like i i hear what you're saying and i feel like the film you know, if it's a, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If it, it's in the subconscious of of both Cronenberg and um, uh, Goldblum, Goldblum, but also uh, Charles Edward Pogue, his original script, which was massively reviewed. Oh, um, right, right. You know, it you know it could be just things that are unexplored to an extent, but are maybe just there in the subtext or just lingering ideas that don't get capitalized on. But in the fra- in the context of the film, I mean. It just it adds to one of the one of the many things that I think you can you know rightfully look at from the you know from an outsider perspective as opposed to what the film was intentionally trying to draw your mind towards. Yeah, I, I mean, we we've talked before on the on the podcast about like don't criticize criticize the film we saw, not the better film that plays in our head, mm-hmm. right? Not the film you want it to be. But I mm-hmm. do think these components are there, and I'm kind of going at it in reverse because, like. It's a very crucial scene, right? The the abortion scene where she gives birth, the the the, la- the larva comes out, and Cronenberg casts himself as the doctor. By the way, you just right? mentioned that made me like made Squirm. me like sick a little bit. Yeah, there's uh, there's there, there is a <laughs> Abe, Abe's, Abe's top five. There's a there is a reason why Cronenberg is the doctor. By the way, it's because Gina Davis wanted him to be the doctor. She wanted the director to be right there uh, to handle oh, yeah. that sequence. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It, it wasn't a matter of Cronenberg needed to be that guy so he could better imbue his sensibilities on this scene or something. It was because <laughs> Gina Davis just trusted him most as far as if she's going to be on I these mean, if she's going to be on these stirrups, she'd prefer it be him standing there and you know not some yeah. extra or something. Like that. So, sorry to bother you. Sorry to interrupt there. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I, listen, I wouldn't worry so much about the larva baby. Just focus on the disease, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Take your mind off the baby. Yeah, I've got to go throw up right now. Yeah, Abe, just be careful. <laughs> what doors you lock yourself into at night oh man larva that should be in his christmas hey. stocking this year too <laughs> Ooh, that'd be cool fly christmas uh, stockings like a little larva i know the, i know the perfect gift for him we get him that that uh, that brundlefly museum man yeah oh <laughs> that's it they're stocking yeah. stuffers I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, what were you, what you were going to No, no. I, I, I actually had a question for uh, for everybody, which is uh, the moment he cuts up the steak and gives her one that's been through the pod and one that isn't. Yeah. And she 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 immediately is like, "Oh, I can't eat it. It tastes synthetic." I always kind of wondered what that must taste like, and I'm wondering, do you guys have like a sense, like a sense reflex of what that must taste like? Because to me, it always I always imagined it tastes like a battery. Or like like metallic I'd when say, she says synthetic. That's the taste that I get metallic, in my mouth. My, my thought is like uh, metallic and bad tofu. It tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually just warmed something up in my teleporter. So hold on, let me try. Oh, that's a great point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's but definitely chicken. I, I, I'm really curious. I'm really curious for something you said earlier Aaron, about uh, everybody, you know, uh, uh, picking out the top three Cronenberg films. Yeah, let's do that. We've been running long. I don't think we're going to be able to get to uh, body horror. We can save that for another episode. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'd rather talk about that as a uh, less of a contained state because there's a lot to go over in that genre, much like we've done in other genres uh, for this this podcast. Uh, but yeah, top three Cronenberg films. I can start because I generally know mine offhand. It is Eastern Promises, it History of Violence, and The Fly. I think those are my. And I'm not putting down the others that I really enjoy. Um, there's mm-hmm. something I'm just not as big of a fan of as I know others are. Like I'm not a huge Scanners fan, but um, no, for me. How uh, dare you? How. <laughs> dare you there's 
I could get into why later, but yeah, I. But speaking of the what I really like, yeah, you know, Eastern Promises is legit one of my favorite movies of all time. Like I love that movie. I think it's absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. History of Violence, I think, is equally wonderful. And uh, the fly. Wait, yeah. over over Fast Company. <laughs> I mean, it's no rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Rabbit is awesome, dude. Was, Rabbit is awesome. I was waiting Don't for Abe's list. Rabbit. I was waiting for Abe's list, which includes The Fly, The Fly, and The Fly. <laughs> yeah, Quite man, honestly, sure. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the same as Aaron's, because those are the only David Cronenberg movies that I've seen. Fair wow. Enough. I watched yeah. Existence not too long ago, too. That's another one where it's like, this is. There's no other director that could make this movie. <laughs> like this is. Cosmopolis <laughs> well, isn't the one where where there's like that weird little guy that goes around being seven parts in the movie, right? No, that's um, that's Holy Motors. Holy Motors. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, Cosmopolis is Robert Pattinson in a limo for basically the entire runtime yeah. of the movie. Yep. Paul Giamatti's People. in it. <laughs> oh. Wait, yeah, he is right. I didn't, I didn't make that up. He is. Yeah, he's in it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just just at the end. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Existence Mike. is really underrated, I think. I like it. I, I think I, so too. I, I like it as part of that mix of movies that came out in 99 that are all similar, or 98, 99, with Dark City, The Matrix, Existence, and The 13th Floor. Uh-huh. It's like, that'd be a marathon. <laughs> a very familiar marathon. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, how about you? What are your favorite Cronenberg films? Uh, I know what they're not. And I, it's like a, it's really Cronenberg sacrilege to say that I'm not the biggest Videodrome fan. <gasps> yeah it's it's i think it's I like okay it. too <laughs> yeah it, it's it's probably better than okay it just never it's, i think it's a classic like it's not you it's me movie like it, it, i've given <laughs> it multiple chances and this just never really did anything for me um I mean, sure, I, but surely james Wood's right. attitudes recently have made you reconsider it to think it's even better oh sure 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 oh I, gosh I, yeah. I i rise to james wood's tweets you know it's the first thing i do um, he's yeah. banned now it, so i mean you can't anymore but oh that's right <laughs> yeah and why am i getting up in the morning <laughs> uh i'm a big fan of dead ringers although it uh, i haven't seen it in a long time <laughs> maybe i'll you know maybe i'll look at it differently it has a great uh-huh. new uh, screen factor release that came out like last year yeah. i believe yeah, it's, uh, yeah yeah you know i i i don't know if i'd put it in my top three but i do think spider is pretty underrated um, I think it's it's interesting. It's it's less fleshy and it's more inward and psychological. But mm. I remember thinking like this is kind of interesting. And I remember like Cronenberg does the commentary track on at least one version of the DVD release, and it's it's really interesting and fascinating. And um, and Aaron, you're right. He's a very generous uh, like explainer of his own method. He's oh, not yeah. shy about it or, or kind of you know, hey audience, what do you think? He, you know, he's very kind of upfront about what he's intending to do. Um. And I love Cronenberg's performance in uh, Nightbreed, so I'll throw that. Oh in. yeah, right so as, the, as the psychiatrist slash killer. Mm-hmm. It's a great mask. Don't forget Jason X too. He's great now. He's and great Jason, Jason X. X. Yeah. Is he really in that? Yeah, he's at yes. the beginning. He's uh, he's yeah. a, beginning. Is he like a warden or whatever? And then like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> So, so you have no favorites? You want to actually go like that? I guess, yeah, those, I'd kind of circle around those. I don't know if I'd rank them. but So the fly would be on there. I'd put Dead Ringers, and I'll throw in Existence as my sort of offbeat third choice. Sure. That or Dead Zones. Fair enough. Jason, how about you? Uh, okay, well, number one, I mean, uh, I'll have to be the uh, the that, that guy, but number one for me is definitely going to be Videodrome. From the minute that VHS yeah. tape... From the minute that, from the minute that VHS tape moved... 
it had me. So Videodrome, definitely number one. Number two, Eastern Promises, because it's definitely, I feel, Cronenberg's, I, get, I use the word most accomplished film. Mm -hmm. And number three would definitely be The Fly. But I would say the one that disappointed me the most in Cronenberg's whole um, filmography would be Crash, because that was a film that not only was I looking forward to because of the dark subject matter, but it had two of my favorite lead actors in it, James Spader and Elias Cotillas. And I was so looking forward to Crash. And it I, I was so disappointed by that movie um because i remember it was noted noted, noted, noted canadian was, elias Cotius. yeah 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 so i'm a huge <laughs> fan of both those guys i thought that would be a slam dunk but i was really disappointed by that one but i would definitely go videodrome eastern promises and the fly i, I thought ludicrous mm. was pretty great in crash but yeah i mean that movie is pretty forgettable <laughs> <laughs> jimmy how about you Wow, uh, you know, I'm going to go kind of similar with you guys, but I've got something that hasn't been really talked about. I, I love The Fly, so that'd probably be one. I would probably go with either Eastern Promises or History of Violence, depending on my mood. And then I'd finish it up with Naked Lunch. I love that movie. Everything about it. I think it's kind of brilliant. I think it's uh, bold. I think it, uh, you know, that's not an easy novel to put to put to the screen and it, it's, uh, i it's famously known as unfilmable i believe <laughs> yeah and i i i thought this movie was really effective i love the performances i love peter weller i love judy davis love ian hall i love julian sands is always good this is just a weird fucking movie that i just i think i saw like i i, I just wanted to watch it again and again for like one week of my life i was like yeah this is really i, I need this in my life so yeah naked lunch is one of my favorites i love that we're all kind of in agreement that no one gives a shit about the dangerous method <laughs> I, no, I, 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 no i like the dangerous method i you did, did? like the people in it yes. wow that's a terrible I like dude. <laughs> I, I did not hate it. No, I did not hate it. I didn't love it, but I, I didn't I didn't mind it. I thought it was a little slow, but I, I appreciated it. I was more or less annoyed that a cast that consists of uh, Viggo Mortensen, Michael Fassbender, Vincent Cassell, and Karen Knightley was not a better movie. Uh, it's just like, there seems like there's something yeah. great to come out of this from David Cronenberg, <laughs> and it just, and especially it's coming after um, Eastern Promises, and I'm thinking, well, this can't be bad, and it just, it just wasn't, wasn't my, wasn't my favorite. <laughs> to me, to yeah. me, a, to me, a dangerous method felt like Cronenberg's stab at trying to get an Oscar. That's what it felt like to me. Yes, I agree with that yeah. too. I mean, I, I liked it, but. Yes, it, it felt a little bit too like. Well, let's let's go for the high. Let's let's go for the awards. And that, yeah, that was my issue with that movie. I mean, he got he got Vigo that Oscar nomination with Eastern Promises, which I was so like I was so thrilled by seeing. That. I was like, oh my god, that's amazing that that happened. It deserved. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, we've been going pretty long, um, and I feel like going uh, over our top three Cronenberg is a good way to wrap things up here. But I I welcome uh, talking more about Cronenberg and body horror in the future. Ideally, assembling mm -hmm. the same crew because we all seem to have a lot of opinions on this very subject matter, which I think is a lot of fun. But with all that said, um, yeah, no, I think this has been a really solid entry into our uh, horror episode canon. I think it's been a very satisfying episode for anyone that's been waiting for our fly-focused episode. And so I want to thank all of you guys for uh, joining Abe and I to, to discuss all this stuff. Yeah, thank Hopefully. you guys. Yeah, yeah thanks, for thanks, thanks for having us. Anytime. For sure. So um, before we uh, completely wrap up here, let's go over where people can find all of your work online. Let's start with Jimmy O. Uh, Jimmy O, Joe Blow, Arrow in the Head. Uh, you can find me at Twitter, you know, all those stupid places. Uh, Jason Colton. <laughs> <laughs> 
just type in stupid places. What's the matter with you, Jimmy? You are, you're awesome. It's not. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, whysoblue.com, you know, I've covered, uh, the last thing I did was the, uh, the book review of Don Coscarelli's new book. So that's up there. Uh, I am working on a little piece, uh, specifically for fans and for my boss, Brian White, um, that's going to go up at the end of, or, you know, just before Halloween that I think fans are really going to enjoy. So you can check out the work there. And of course, Jimmy and I, uh, we're still, we're, we're still working on something possibly coming up, uh, for flicks Ooh. for fans on the Facebook page, uh, possibly in January. So you can look us up at facebook.com slash flicks, F-O-R, for fans. Yes, yes. That'll make sense, though. Mike, anything you want to plug? You know what? I actually do. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I, usually, I usually never have anything online to plug because I'm not good at stuff. But uh, <laughs> First of all, that's not true. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I have... Uh, yeah, I can't do anything. But I am... Uh, there is a documentary that's doing the festival rounds right now it's called wolfman's got nards oh it is about the yeah it's about the 30-year cult fandom around monster squad from 1987 uh i happen to to be in this film oh very cool now i do need to see it yeah (laughs) i'm one of the yeah i'm one of the talking heads in it and i got to see it at beyond fest last week and you know, as biased as I am, it's actually quite lovely it's a very loving tribute to the fans and it's it's a great fan doc so I'd encourage you guys and all your listeners to check it out as soon as it, you know, becomes available someplace. Oh, very cool. No. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Abe. Uh, Instagram, Abe.mua, Twitter.com, slash Wallersmoose, hashtag, the fly is disgusting, uh, and also uh, everywhere else. Search for uh, Aaron and Abe on the Google machine. Yeah, you can find me on Weave Entertainment, uh, at Aaron's PS4 on Twitter. You can find our podcast everywhere. You can find podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Audio Boom, all that. Um, let's see, next week, uh, for next week's horror special, we're going to be talking about uh, the Lethal Ladies of Horror, I believe, is the plan. Ooh. Um, suggested oh, by man. Jason, where we talk about some of the, uh, the famed heroines of horror that survived the night or the day or what have you and overcame their uh, various... Uh, villainous encounters which i think should be a lot of fun i think there's a lot of different things we can uh, represent in that episode um mm-hmm. we have plenty more things planned for the month as well um so i want to say once again thank you to mike dylan jason coleman and jimmy o many many thanks thank you thank bye you. <laughs> that's gonna do it for this uh, horror special so until next time so long and goodbye